He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come to America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. This is our Metropolitan Report covering the entire tri-state area. We have a great show for you today. We have former Governor David Patterson, Congressman Peter King, Steve Cates, what are we doing? We're looking in the sky. Ray Kelly, our former great commissioner on what the heck we're going to do with New York. Zach Williams on Albany. Dick Morris, wow, what's really going on in Washington? And let's start with my good friend, Michael Stoller, that's going to talk about New York real estate. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller, host of the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have uh, Eli Weiss, who is a principal at Joy Construction, a man who's worked for the city of New York, a man who's Brooklyn born and bred, but, and who also is a leading expert in what we call affordable housing. So what are the incentives that a developer gets for building affordable housing? So there's a myriad of um, incentives. They start at the federal level with tax-exempt bonds and low-income housing tax credits that were created in 1986 and have spurred the development of hundreds of thousands of affordable units since that time. Uh, There are also local capital subsidy programs available from the city and state, as well as tax abatements that are available. Essentially, Building and developing affordable housing in New York or in any locality in the United States is really cobbling together several layers of financing so that you can financially engineer a building that costs the same as your standard market rate rental building, but is able to provide the renters with rents that are affordable commensurate with their incomes. Question, where are the the majority of new affordable apartments being built and uh Where do you see the future? Is it mostly the Bronx? So there's been a large concentration of units built in the Bronx, in Upper Manhattan, in Brooklyn. Um, Naturally, Staten Island is more residential, so it has seen less. Queens has had a tremendous um, production of affordable housing in Jamaica. I think it really has to do with where there's the availability of land at the right price. And I think there are sort of two segments of the market. There are the buildings that are 100% affordable, and you'll typically find those in neighborhoods where land is at a uh, more attractive cost basis for developers. But then you also, until recently, had what was known as the 421A, or in its latest iteration, Affordable New York, where a market rate building would have an affordable component to qualify for a tax abatement. So you could have affordable housing units being built in what are considered the most affluent neighborhoods in New York, but as a component of a market rate building. Right. That, that is tied into what we call AMI. So would you explain what AMI is? Sure. What percentage? A- AMI is a, an acronym for the area median income. So the area median income for a metropolitan uh, statistical area, as HUD would define it, is defined by the federal government through its housing, housing agency, HUD. Uh, housing and urban development. And basically, they take a survey, which essentially most of the information comes through the census, and sort of 
comes out with what's considered the area median income for that locale, locality. And typically, um, it's a wider sort of range um, so that basically one income can cover a large geographical area. So in New York, right now, the area median income for a family of four is roughly $110,000, which means that if that family were to be in an affordable apartment, they would not be spending more than roughly $33,000 a year in rent. Okay, but what is the, the, the point on the uh, up to 175% of AMI? So essentially when policymakers are looking to create affordable housing, they're trying to make sure that every segment of the population that needs affordable housing is targeted. So for example, I just financed a project in Inwood where the range of the apartments range from 27% of the area median income, meaning families earning roughly $30,000 a year, to 90% of the area median income, which are families earning about $100,000 a year. And so by creating different tranches of affordability, we're able to target a wider audience and thus create a mixed income community. What about the lottery? Explain the lottery program. Sure. So all of the new affordable units that created in New York are... Um, accessed by our lottery. There's an online website called NYC Housing Connect, and applicants can go on, look at all the buildings that are uh, currently marketing for open units, and they'll be explained exactly what income levels um, are required in order to qualify for that building. You submit an application. That application goes into a lottery pool, and then when the marketing period ends, um, the developer, in conjunction with uh, the city of New York's housing agencies, conduct a lottery so that there's no preferential treatment in terms of who gets selected for these apartments. It's totally random. Once your name gets selected in the lottery, you're contacted by the management company who will call you in for an interview and tell you which documents you need to bring. And then they'll pre-qualify you. And then once you're pre-qualified, your application then gets sent to the city of New York for your final approval. And once you're approved, you can then um, get a lease and move into your brand new apartment. I will tell you that I've built buildings that are roughly 100 units and have gotten 40,000 applications. Now, remember, under the current system, tenants are allowed to apply to many buildings at a time. So even though you're getting 40,000 applications for 100 units, there may be an applicant in there who's applied to eight or 10 buildings. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if one out of 592 is the accurate number. Right. The, the article that I read, I think, came out from the city, was they suggested that as opposed to blanketing the lottery, if you, you have certain buildings you want, just just go for that. Well, I think that's true, and I think that also helps the development community because I think, remember, each, pro- each application needs to be processed, which means if somebody really had no interest in living in that building, it's sort of a waste for the developer and the government to go through that application, pre-qualify them for that person who really never really wanted to live there. So I think that if everybody just really applied to the few buildings that they really wanted to live in, it would actually streamline the timeline for the lottery process. And I think it would be more efficient for the developers, for the city government, and ultimately for the tenants themselves. Now, you, you were saying before, I believe that you can win the lottery to be in one of these very luxury buildings. The, they may be renting the other apartments for $9,800 a foot. It's truly winning a lottery. Absolutely. Are, are, you, are you protected 
to be in that building for the future? What are, what are the rules and regulations with regard to that? Sure. So all of the um, affordable units are governed by rent stabilization laws in New York. And so essentially, um, but for your standard rent stabilized um, increases, you are protected to be in that building for the rest of your life as long as you pay the rent and comply with you know, your lease. Um, even if years later you were to make more income, that does not mean that you're no longer qualified to stay in that apartment. You are. You're protected for as long as you are a tenant in good standing. That's interesting because in Long Island, you aren't protected. Correct. And I think that's just the nature of the way New York City looks at housing policy versus other um, locations or municipalities. I think in New York, what we like to see is a stable home will lead to people making more money. I think that is the policy. That is the end story of what someone who's you know spent 20 years in the private and public sector in affordable housing. I love that story. I love when I hear that five years later, somebody is doing much better from an income point of view. And I think that's the reason that apartment was created, not that it's unfair. What about what's happening up in Inwood, the rezoning and everything? Sure. So it was a very contentious rezoning up in Inwood. There was litigation involved, but ultimately the rezoning passed. And you're seeing several you know, prolific developments from Taconic and L&M. Um, my, my partners and I, Joy Construction and Mad Equities, we just closed on a 611-unit um, mixed-income community on 207th and 9th Avenue that'll have a waterfront park along the East River, as well as 611 affordable units. As I mentioned before, it's a mixed-income uh, development. We'll also have 64,000 square feet of commercial space. So I think what you're seeing is the fruits of the labor of that rezoning. There's going to be a tremendous amount of housing, a tremendous amount of affordable housing, job creation, a new park. Um, and I think you're going to see that investment pay off. So, you know, I'm very happy that the Cats Roundtable was able to discuss a very important topic about affordable housing, and hopefully we'll have you back in the future. Thanks Thank you again. so much. Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. We have real great stories this morning. Get your hot cup of coffee ready because you're going to need it. With us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, and he's with us every week to give us all kinds of, of, of bonus stuff of what's going on in our skies and, and what mysteries are still out there. Uh, Steve, Good morning on this Sunday morning. Good morning, John. Good morning, Sunday morning to you and all the listeners. And, you know, this week, as we talked last week, we were going to talk about, and we will, two amazing mysteries in the solar system. One is the satellite and moon called Titan around Saturn, and then we'll transfer over to this amazing story of the two moons of Mars. But, John, this is interesting. The largest moon of Saturn is a satellite called Titan, and it's actually twice the size of our Earth moon, but how about this? It's the only satellite in the solar system that has a true atmosphere unto itself. And it goes around the planet Saturn once every 15 days. But that's not what's exciting. 
What's exciting, John, you're in the oil business. Imagine this. The Cassini spacecraft has verified that on this particular satellite, Moon, we call it, Titan, that there are actually lakes of methane and liquid ethane. Now, this is incredible because over the course of a few years, they've noticed that there's changes as if there's actually ripples like waves in this particular series of lakes, mostly near the Titan uh, you know, polar area. Isn't that totally amazing to report to the listeners? I hope someday we find out what the heck is really going on. And uh, I've always said to you, uh, when I asked the Archbishop one time, uh, yes. and I said to him, uh, uh, do you think there's life on other planets? And he says, what makes you think that God only left his seeds on this planet? Precisely, John. But we transition to something I think even more bizarre. The planet Mars, of course, with mankind's next approach of a place where humans will go to, ask Elon Musk, ask others. Mars has two moons, John. We mentioned it last week. They're called Deimos and Phobos. They were discovered in the old Naval Observatory back in 1877. And these two moons are quite small. Little Phobos is about 13 miles in diameter, while little Deimos is 7.8 miles in diameter. And when they translate, if you go back to their names, they mean panic and fear. And they were the horses that drove this chariot that the great god himself, Mars, or in the Greek word, Ares, they moved around this particular amphitheater. But these particular objects are weird. Let's say you and I went to the surface of Phobos. How about this? A 150-pound person on Phobos, John, would only weigh two ounces, so you literally could jump off the moon and just go out into space. But what's fascinating about this is that Phobos goes around Mars. It rises in the west, obviously opposite the way we see our sky, and little Deimos goes around like normal satellites like the moon does around us. But, John, this is an amazing story because many spacecraft, including Russian Phobos spacecraft, have been lost as they got into the area where these satellites are. So I know this is quite fascinating, and I'm sure the listeners are going, wow. And what you can see in the sky, John, we continue to talk very briefly here about the beautiful conjunction, I don't know if you've seen it, after sunset of Venus and the planet Jupiter. This is an absolute wonder, wonderful thing to see. Don't miss it, folks. So many people are sending me emails and telling me this is a great thing to look at. And, of course, we would agree. What do we say? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies and check us out at wabcradio.com for our Dr. Sky Experience podcast and also our blog. And it's an honor here to John to be sharing this with the, the listeners on your show. Well, Steve Cates, thank you for your input and thank you for, for expanding our minds. And we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you, John. Have a great day. What is today is Governor David Patterson. He has lived through our legislature systems. He was the governor. And so many things are going on in New York City, New York State now. It's good to have him on a Sunday morning to find out where the heck are we. Governor Patterson, where do we start off this Sunday morning with? Well, John, we've had quite a tumultuous week in terms of the weather, tornadoes and hurricanes all around uh, the country major snowstorms the threat of a major snowstorm on uh tuesday right here in new york but that turned out to be a dud and of course um another earthquake in turkey this week we had uh of course the big train crash in greece and then right in uh in ohio still fallout from the um unfortunate uh, crash of the train with all of the dangerous supplies on it. But amid all that, 
Mayor Eric Adams always manages to get into the news, and he created a little storm when he basically said that he thinks there should be prayer in schools, that he always liked it when there were prayer in schools. He's a very religious person and uh, really feels that we should certainly call on the spirit, whatever spirit we worship, to be a greater part of our lives. I didn't think it was worth the civil liberties unions and everyone writing about what the law is. He didn't say he wanted to change the Supreme Court law or anything like that. But I think that uh, to have an elected official embrace his spiritual beliefs and to admonish all of us to do the same was not a bad thing. What do you think? Um, Well, I'll tell you, uh, I I personally believe, you know, I, I went through many stages in life, but I think us as human beings... We're much, much too complicated to be an accident. And I think I do believe that a superior being has created us. Well, I was once being interviewed, John, by the New York Post reporter, Fred Dicker. He had a show up in Albany and uh, he was complaining that the people who live downstate are always passing these laws to restrict uh, development of the upstate region. And he said, look at all this land, and it's not being developed. Later in the interview, we started talking about uh, spirituality, like you and I are talking right now. And he asked me if I thought there was life on other planets. And I said, I think there's a very good chance that there is. And he said, but don't you have religious beliefs? I said, yes. And I said, I don't think God would leave all that real estate all over the universe and not put any other uh, uh, living beings on it. So I totally agree with you. Another, I, I agree with you because of what the Archbishop once told me, and I said that before uh, to uh, Dr. Skye, you know what I said? I said, the Archbishop once said to me, uh, what makes you think that God would only leave his seeds only on one planet? On one planet out of... Out of zillions. Zillions, exactly. Governor Patterson, what other uh, things were significant this week that you want to bring out? Well, the primary elections in Chicago are in March. Um, I don't know why they're in March in Chicago, maybe so more dead people can vote. But the uh, result is that the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, was put out. She did not even make the runoff. The runoff is a candidate named Johnson who may be more verbose and perhaps divisive than at times Mayor Lightfoot was. But... uh, There'll be a runoff with Vallis, is that his name? Vallis. Vallis. Paul Vallis. He was a chancellor of the schools in Philadelphia. He was a chancellor of the schools in Chicago, and he ran. So now I I jokingly say it's good against evil. Vallis wants law and order, and uh, Johnson wants to defund uh, the police in Chicago, which will make things worse. Um, What do you think? I, I think Vallis will win. And they're win. both Democrats, so there's no argument there. I think uh, Vallis will win. And uh, the reason is that I think more and more Democrats are demonstrating their fear about crime all over the country. We've had a crime wave in, wave in this country ever since, I would say, that started six months after the pandemic. So that would be back in October, November of 2020. And it's precipitated and yet the attempts to fight it have been thwarted by people who seem to think that there's something about the crime rate that relates to law enforcement there obviously 
are cases of horrible law enforcement. We had one just recently in Memphis, Tennessee, where Dr. Martin Luther King was slain many years ago. A horrible murder by police officers, I believe, there against a private citizen who the police now say he wasn't even committing any vehicular uh, infractions at the time. They just pulled him over and beat him to death. That is an indictment of the individuals that did it. The police department took action. Everyone did what they were supposed to do. And although it was a horrible tragedy for the family and just to see that happen to a person, the, the um, measures that should have been taken were. Meanwhile, we want our police to survive. We want our police to be uh, successful. We want our police to be well-liked. We want our police to be a lot of things. But we have to understand that uh, in order to do that, we have to give them some leeway. And I've been a frequent critic of the department. But certainly in New York City, I think over the past few years, uh, I think they've done a a very good job. Now, the protesters who got uh, uh, sprayed uh, by pepper spray back in 2020 won $21,000 apiece. Uh, that uh, certainly raised some eyebrows. Because I mean, is that a dumb? Is that a dumb thing? Well, they weren't seriously hurt, so I don't understand what they needed twenty-one thousand uh, dollars for, other than pain and suffering. But you know, I guess perhaps the videotape—I didn't see it—but maybe the videotape shows that they went out of their way to pepper spray people who were just peacefully demonstrating. But I just thought it was a noteworthy um, piece of information that came out this week. Well, Governor David Patterson, thank you for waking up early and being on the uh, on the show this morning. And thank you for your wisdom and thank you for everything you've done for uh, New York City and New York State. And we'll catch up again real soon. Hopefully next week, John. You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers. It's the Cats Roundtable. Comes true on Sunday in New York. We have real great stories this morning. Get your hot cup of coffee ready because you're going to need it. With us today is former Commissioner Ray Kelly. And uh, what a mess we have in our hands in, in New York. And Ray Kelly, how are you today? I'm fine, John. Thanks for having me. What a mess we have in our hands. Uh, I understand uh, from the city uh, that they... Uh, the, the, the problem we had in 2020 with, with the riots, with, the, uh, with, with everything, the city council wants to settle. They want to settle with the rioters, the 300 uh, odd-on rioters or protesters, whatever you want to call them. I, I mean, I remember it, watching it on television on my, in my head, them walking out of Macy's, carrying everything they can carry, walking out of Macy's. And uh, uh, being uh, and the police were ordered, don't stop them. And now the yep. and now the city council wants to pay them twenty one thousand dollars each. I mean, what what yeah. the heck is going on? Well, are we living in a bizarre world or what? <laughs> we sure are. Now I think it is disgraceful. You remember that well as I do. The city was facing anarchy. The protesters were intent on on provoking mayhem, and grinding the city to, uh, to a halt. There were several days of violent demonstration. Uh, and in this particular case, 
they violated a curfew that Mayor de Blasio put in for two nights. And the police were forced to, to take uh, aggressive action and make arrests. And by the way, nobody spent any time in, in jail as a result of those uh, arrests. In these citywide riots that lasted uh, quite a while, uh, in, the, in the Bronx, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, about a thousand cops, all told, were injured. But you're right. I think it's actually the Corporation Council that's looking to, to settle this case in settlement is all the Corporation Council seems to know when it comes to the NYPD. God forbid they should have to go to trial on, on some case. All they do is settle uh, these cases. What about going to trial on, on some of them? They, they know that the city will only throw money at these radical groups and uh, that it might amount to them as a payday. And it sure did, or it sure will. So it is absolutely, I think, gut-wrenching that they continue to do this. And you know what? A lot of the lawyers who bring these cases used to work for the Corporation Council. So they spend a few years there, and uh, they go into a private law practice, and guess what? (laughs) They sue the city, and they know... You know, the, they know the ins and outs of how to do that. They know what amount to ask for. So the city will settle. They know what where the settlement bar is. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a vicious circle. But the, to do this in, in the face of, of, of the, the anarchy that we've faced in, uh, in, in 2020, I think is so reprehensible. Now, if you were mayor... If you were Mayor uh, Ray, and many many people uh, uh, would have loved for you to run, uh, what would you have done in this situation? I certainly would have backed the, the, the police. Uh, you know, they were caught short by the demonstrations, uh, you know, after George Floyd's terrible death. Uh, if you remember, Mayor de Blasio said, go easy. <laughs> go easy. Well, he didn't tell that to the demonstrators. He didn't tell that to the people who injured over a thousand cops. So I think you have to take, and it should have taken a, a very hard line. You have to keep the city functioning. And these people were hell bent on shutting it down. Right now, the only thing we're depending on, uh, uh, the budget uh, comes due April 1st in, uh, in Albany. And uh, Governor Patterson has advised Governor Hochul that he, she's got a lot of power to do the right thing uh, as far as bail reform. There's no way that they're going to change that. You know why? Because they can just do it. They're doing this. They're sticking a finger in the eye of, uh, uh, of New Yorkers because they have the power to do it. It makes absolutely no sense for New York State to be the only state in the union where dangerousness is not considered by a judge. And they want it that way. And they, they've said as much. Uh, they're ignoring the, the governor. It doesn't look like the governor has much uh, clout uh, to begin with. So uh, I, I'm certainly not uh, optimistic about the change in bail laws. You know, and it gives the mayor something to hide behind. He can always say, hey, the city council is not, not doing it. What can I do? So I think we are uh, we're in sort of a catch-22 situation here. And I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, unfortunately. Well, here at WABC, uh, where your son uh, is on every day between 2 o'clock uh, and, uh, and, well, between 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock, 
you, you always have a voice. So if you have something to say, please call us, call me, call your son, and we'll speak out. Look, we're at, we're in the verge of maybe saving Chicago. You have you heard that? Yes, yes. I hope that is uh, uh, you know something that that may indicate we're turning the corner on some of this. That, that mayor was absolutely horrible and arrogant and, and really a, a, a radical. So we'll have to see. They're not out of the woods yet. This is uh, now a runoff. And uh, we'll, we'll see what, what happens there. But, the you know, the power of these unions, the teachers' union, for instance, you know, in Chicago, very powerful. You know, backing the minority candidate, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, it at least was, was some <laughs> bright light on what may happen in, in the future. It's not going to happen in New York for, for quite a while, unfortunately. Well, I, 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 we all pray for New York. We all pray for New York, and uh, I hope uh, I hope the governor. Uh, she's a tough Irish girl. I hope she stands up and and does something. And uh, Commissioner Ray Kelly, thank you for everything you've done for our city and our country. And we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. With us today is former Congressman Peter King. And uh, Congressman King, how are you this Sunday morning? John, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We're sort of, you know, getting through the winter. There's been a few cold, snowy days here on and off. There's light at the end of the tunnel, and we're all set to enjoy spring and go on, and hopefully New York can follow in that path and also have a new uh, a new day. Where would you like to start this morning? Uh, uh, Chicago? I mean, it looks like uh, uh, Lightfoot, the mayor, got defeated. She can't run again. What say you? Yeah, even though it's in Chicago and it's eight, 900 miles away and it's a different city from New York, I think what happened in Chicago can have a real impact here in New York, certainly among the progressive uh, Democrats, the uh, uh, so-called liberal Democrats who really are not liberal at all, in that you know, these are the ones who have been uh, uh, defunding the police, been almost anti-police, what they're saying, they the so-called bail reform. I mean, there's just so much that's gone wrong as far as tying the hands of the police and crime is becoming more and more out of control, certainly the violent crime on the streets. Now, in Chicago, you had a mayor who was basically elected as being anti-cop, who was going to, uh, uh, you know, cut the police budgets. and She was going to uh, uh, do everything really to uh, advance the whole progressive reform agenda. And Chicago is turning to like a, a killing field. I mean, uh, the murder rates, uh, you know, we, we uh, are concerned here in New York. It's nothing. Nothing like what's going on in Chicago. It's just uh, murder became out of control, robberies, people are afraid to walk the streets. I have a friend of mine who live in Chicago who say it's become just a different world. Anyway, in the, in the uh, primary the other night, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor who presided over all this, she didn't even make it to the uh, next round. She was eliminated. She got 17% of the vote. She came in third, a very distant third. And uh, the two candidates who... Uh, I mean, ahead of it, you know, they're not going a, uh, a runoff. Uh, one of them is very, very pro-police. The other is still supporting the uh, defund the police movement. But to me, so this I is this Democrats is even- this is good against evil. They're both Democrats, and one of them wants to support uh, common sense and support uh, a safe Chicago, and the other one wants to defund the police. So April fourth, we're going to find out what the heck is happening. 
Yeah, and John, you raised the best point there. This is not a Republican or Democratic issue. This is Democrat against Democrat. One is common sense. The other is still living in the uh, progressive past, where somehow they feel if they turn their back on crime, uh, we're not going to see it. It's not going to be happening. And actually, it's worse than ever. So, no, I think this is a a, a wake-up call, certainly in Chicago. But I think Democrats, the progressive Democrats here in New York, should see that. And they should realize what's going to happen here. If they don't change their, their, their tactics, if they don't start supporting the mayor, when he asked them to change the bail reform laws to uh, have the principle of dangerousness where a judge can hold someone and require bail if he feels it's dangerous to the community. I mean, these are all things that have to be done. And, you know, thank God that it is being done in Chicago. Hopefully this will be a message to New York and all of us. And Keyshawn Silver, the commissioner, will get the support she needs. Eric Adams will get the support that he needs. And Governor Hochul will be able to exert well. pressure. Now, April 1st, the budget is due in New York State, and Governor Hochul, and I pray for her, she's going to have to put her foot down and decide who's going to be the governor. Is it going to be the state senate being being the governor, or is it going to be her? Absolutely. That's where it is. And uh, as you said, you know, Governor Patterson has been on your show several times talking about this is really the governor's opportunity. This is the one time she controls the budget. She has the, the power decide how money is going to be spent, not be spent. She can hold it off really as long as she wants. So this is the leverage she now has over the legislature. She had leverage back in December uh, when they wanted a pay raise, and she uh, should have gotten more out of them for that, certainly as far as getting her court of appeals judge uh, uh, approved to get uh, changes made in the bail reform. She didn't do it. Now she's got one more shot, and it's a big shot because nothing is more uh, powerful than the governor who has this uh, budget power, but she has to use it now. She can't afford to be uh, sitting back and she can't afford to be somehow let the uh, legislature steamroll her. Not even for any one issue, John, but nobody elected them governor. And yet she's abdicated some of her power to them. She's got to get it back. She's got to be hard and she's got to be tough. As you said, John, you consider her a tough Irish girl. Uh, It's really time for her to live up to that and get the job done. That's all New Yorkers. That's all they want is to be safe. And, uh, you know, uh, well, how many people? We have 20 million people in New York State. Who, what, 20 million people deserve to be safe versus 2,000 or 3,000 violent criminals. Yeah, let the police do their job. Let them preempt it. Let them go out in the communities, fill up their sources, do the search and frisk. They have to. Find out who was the guns, who are the, who are the bad guys, and they know most of that already. Follow them, hound them, and make sure we get them uh, into court, get them on trial, and get them in prison. That's the way to do it. There's no reason why 3,000 should be able to terrorize 20 million. We have time for one more subject. What else keeps you up at night? One thing I'm uh, really pleased to see, and uh, I, I was never a COVID denier or a vaccine denier or anything else, but the fact is now... The government seems to be finally admitting, at least the FBI and the Energy Department are uh, admitting that the uh, COVID virus started in a Chinese lab. And you know, that almost seemed logical from the start. Knowing that China was responsible is one way to avoid that from happening again. Congressman Peter King, thank you for coming on this Sunday morning. And we'll catch up with you again real soon. And let's pray for America. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Looking for a little common sense? 
you found it. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. We continue a common sense conversation on the Cats Roundtable where we listen to all sides. With us today is Zach Williams. He is a star reporter uh, for Albany for the New York Post and writes for it every day. So whenever you want to listen to Zach or talk to Zach, make sure you read the New York Post Monday through Friday uh, or get him with us on Sundays. Uh, Zach, what the heck is going on in Albany? I mean, we're getting down uh, close to the budget time. People, there's a lot of people that are mad as heck about what's going on with uh, law and order. Well, thanks for having me again, John. Yeah, we are getting into the serious uh, stretch of negotiations of the state budget that's due April 1st. The governor just released a bunch of amendments, mostly technical in nature, to her $277 billion proposed spending plan. And we saw a lot of pushback to her various proposals over the past week. I think chief among them has has been the housing plan that the governor has really proactively tried to sell in places like Long Island and um, other suburban areas where there has been just so much resistance to her proposed housing targets. 1% growth upstate, 3% downstate. And if local communities don't meet that, then the state might step in and make it a bit easier for developers to um, to build houses, no matter what the local zoning rules are. So suburbanites are really up in arms on that. The last time they tried to do that in Westchester, my good friend Andrew Spano, who was Westchester County Executive, guess what? He was voted out just because of that. Ooh. <laughs> It is always risky whenever the issue of local control comes up uh, around the New York City suburbs. You know, things can go wrong for Democrats. We've seen it before. This year, the governor is also proposing an increase in the payroll mobility tax. That's really rubbing some folks wrong, considering a big mess that is that is the Long Island Railroad's finances right now. You know, the 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 Hochul administration is asking for more support for the MTA in the upcoming budget. But a lot of lawmakers are just looking at the messed up commutes resulting out of the opening of the Grand Central Madison station to really ask, you know, are commuters really getting um, enough for their buck? And if that isn't enough headaches for the governor, there was also a bunch of pushback this week on two other fronts. One was a four hundred and $50 million loan that her administration wants to um, give for improvements at the Belmont horse track, as well as other pushback from organized labor on her proposed flavored tobacco ban. Now, the, the budget is due April 1st. Now, you mentioned $277 billion. That is some, uh, that's a number that can kill a horse. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, 484000 uh, New Yorkers have moved out of New York City, New York State, uh, and then a lot of them are millionaires, a lot of them middle class, a lot of them are paying a lot of taxes. Are they so trying to blow, number- blow themselves up? <laughs> well, and if you can't couldn't believe that it could go even higher, it might go higher still. In fact, eight hundred million dollars higher. That's the agreed. That's the amount of money that the assembly, the state senate, and the executive branch agreed is actually in there once they reevaluated state finances earlier this week. You know, every year they get together just to agree how much money is actually available for the budget 
and they found a bit more cash uh, than maybe they ex- than the governor expected back in January or the beginning of February when she introduced her budget. So the governor is going to point to the amount of money she's put into reserves, you know, for the state to use if and when the economy heads south again. Progressive lawmakers who have supermajorities, after all, in the state Senate and the Assembly are surely going to push for more social spending in particular. I'll tell you, I'm just, uh, I am worried about New York City, New York State, between the crime uh, that people are very, very upset about, uh, between the crime, the taxes, congestion pricing. Does it have any legs? The governor and the MTA are still intent on going forward with the congestion pricing plan. That's, of course, the the much... (laughs) much-awaited plan to charge drivers for entering Manhattan below 60th Street. You know, they say it's really important for the MTA's future financial health. But when, you know, a lot of its critics point to things like inflated labor costs at the LIRR or just the continued inability of the MTA to manage its finances despite a huge infusion of federal money in recent years. And these critics really ask, you know, maybe, just maybe, they got to fix the MTA finances first before more money is shoved towards the beleaguered agency, whether that's through congestion pricing or anything else. What percentage of uh, people that are paying the subways versus just jumping in? <laughs> well, I don't have that exact number right in front of me, but certainly the agency has struggled to recover its ridership from before the pandemic. And now it still needs even more money. It's still struggling to get riders. You got this mess with with the collateral effects of opening Grand Central Madison and diverting a lot of trains there. You know, a lot of commuters are up in arms about the possibility of fare increases. And in the short term, they got to deal with this mess that has become their commute from Long Island. So it's going to be tricky days ahead for the governor as she tries to sell lawmakers on this idea of using even more money into the MTA while also getting New York City to pay more as well. Yes, exactly correct. Anything else you want to tell New Yorkers? Well, I just would say keep an eye on Albany in the upcoming weeks. You know, state budget negotiations are getting a bit more serious. And certainly there's going to be a lot of give and take between the governor. She pushes for these changes to overhaul bail reform and a lot of lawmakers who want this and that and might uh, extract a price from the governor to get what they want in exchange for a deal on bail. Well, let me tell you something. They're going to lose a lot more people. I was in, uh, uh, in Florida last weekend. A lot of New Yorkers that uh, are not coming back. Well, Zach, I mean, we pray for New York. I love New York. We pray for New York. And uh, uh, thank you for reporting and uh, keeping everybody informed. Hoping for a better New York. And uh, thanks again for having me. Thank you. With us today is uh, Dick Morris, uh, one smart guy in Washington. Uh, He was uh, President Trump's uh, uh, strategist and as well as President Clinton's strategist. And uh, uh, Dick Morris, what's going on in Washington today? Today, the CPAC convention is going to be over the weekend. And uh, it's the uh, Conservative Political Action Committee. And it's looking like a Trump convention. Everybody has MAGA hats on. Uh, Trump is speaking on Saturday night, and uh, everybody is really focused on Trump. DeSantis didn't even show. And I think and Trump has moved to a decisive lead over DeSantis. He's 18 points ahead of him, not just in a two-way race, but in a 15-way race. He's 18 points ahead. 
in the past, his problem has been that he was able to lead in an 18-way, a 15-way race. But then when he collapsed it to a two-way race, all of the people that voted for the other 14 candidates switched to DeSantis. And Trump edged out DeSantis by only a few points. Now that's not the case. Uh, right now, Trump is 18 points ahead with 15 candidates and 18 points ahead when he collapsed. So he's not only his own vote, the second choice of Haley's votes and Pompeo's votes and all of the other candidates. And I think that, and when you look at the demographics of the DeSantis vote, they're very well educated. They tend to be upper income. And when you ask the people, you said in this poll, when we ask people in the poll, when you like Donald Trump and they say yes, uh, do you think he should run? Yes. If he supported, would you vote for him? Yes. And then a third of the people say, but I'm going to vote for somebody else in the head-to-head. I'll vote for Pompeo or DeSantis or somebody else. And then we asked them why. They said, well, we're just a window shopping. We want to see other candidates and see what they have to offer. And then they also said we're concerned that Trump talks too much about the 2020 election and not enough about the future. So both of those problems are solvable because Trump has been really good lately in articulating a very comprehensive agenda for the future. Uh, very good stuff. Uh, and he also uh, has really toned down his talking about 2020. So I think he's going to begin to pick up virtually all of the DeSantis folks. I had worried that the DeSantis folks might be people that disliked Trump because he was too divisive or too nasty or too acerbic, and they weren't going to vote for him. They were never Trumpers. But when you poll it, it turns out they're not. They like Trump. They just want to play with other candidates while they're there. They're just window shopping. And I think eventually they'll come home to buy, and I think they'll be for Trump. So I think Trump has this thing really in hand at this point. Uh, tell us, uh, uh, Dick, what do you think the Democratic field is? I mean, one day, uh, uh, I mean, Jill Biden has said Joe Biden's going to run for sure. And he's going to announce later. Uh, a lot of people in the Democratic Party says uh, maybe he should hang he he should hang it up. Uh, where do you think we lie? Well, I think that Biden is postponing his announcement over and over and over again, uh, and I think that that's because he realizes how vulnerable he is. And I think that everybody's afraid to step up and challenge him because if they challenge him, he can crack quite easily and come down fast and leave the Democratic Party to shattered with a million candidates fighting with each other. So there would be utter chaos on the Democratic side. I think they're scared to death of that. Uh, so uh, I think right now everybody is sort of pretending the emperor is well clothed and in fact He's not wearing any clothes, but nobody's prepared to say that. Well, I don't think Democrats have much of a bench. I mean, uh, Newsom, California is a mess. People are moving out of California. I heard 500,000 in the last 12 months. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, our transportation uh, uh, secretary, I don't think he could run a one-car funeral procession. I mean, He should uh, stay with Ryan and friends. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a safe bet. Lionel but trains. If, well, there are enough candidates. There are about 12 of them. But uh, some of them are retreads, like Elizabeth Warren, or who's dead, or Bernie Sanders. 
And some of them are crazy far out, like they are safe. And uh, everybody's afraid what happens if you unleash that cast of characters on the country. So they're feeling safer with Biden. Well, the first Sunday in March, what is your, any gut feeling right now for the first Sunday in March? For, I mean, November 24 is not that far away. Yeah, well, I think that Trump is way ahead. And I think it's his to lose. And I think he's beating Biden by five points. He's been beating Biden in the last, in the polling in October, November, December, and January, and February. All shows him five ahead. Uh, so I think that uh, he's got a lead. I think he's hanging on to it, growing it. And uh, I think that this so far is looking very, very good for Trump and the Republicans. You're going to be on at noontime today on WABCradio.com yeah. and 770 on your dial. What are you going to talk about at noontime? Well, I'll be on with my buddy, Doug DeBiro, and uh, we're going to be talking about how Biden can possibly go out in public and perform the way he is. Uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, he makes Fetterman look good. It's very sad. I agree. Well, Dick Morris, I'll be listening to you at noontime today on WABC Radio, and uh, have the great rest of the Sunday day. Thank you for listening to the Metropolitan Edition of the Cats Roundtable. After the news, stay tuned for the National Edition and get some real news about what's going on in the world.